Hello and welcome to A History of the United States, episode 135, The Townsend Crisis. In our last episode, we looked at the short and chaotic career of Charles Townsend. In the space of three months, while Prime Minister Chatham suffered a mental breakdown, the Chancellor of the Exchequer introduced a series of legislation known as the Townsend Acts, which upset the balance of power between Westminster and the colonial assemblies. The Americans were not happy, and today we'll get into the details of how they demonstrated this. To start us off, let's look at Massachusetts. Sam Adams was dismayed at the Townsend Acts. He saw exactly what Townsend was intending, to assert Parliament's authority over the Americans. Adams and the Radical Patriots saw this as a relatively innocuous first step to establish Parliament's right to tax them. Before they knew it, there would be a standing army and appointed bishops. The Patriots viewed this as the Stamp Act Part 2, and therefore wanted to call the same plays, namely run the customs commissioners out of Boston, but the merchants and shopkeepers were alarmed by the more economic aspects of the legislation. This, I think, is the perfect moment to introduce to you the most prominent of the Boston merchants, John Hancock. John Hancock was born in Braintree, Massachusetts, on January 23rd, 1737, making him 30 years old when the Townsend Act were passed. John's father, also called John, was a clergyman who died when John was young. With his mother Mary and his siblings, he lived with family, before eventually moving to live with his aunt Lydia and uncle Thomas. John went to study at Harvard in 1754 and graduated in 1759, and then John started to work for his uncle. Thomas was a very successful merchant with a shipping business. John lived in London for a short time, but returned in 1761, when his uncle's health began to fade. He passed away in 1764, and John Hancock took over the estate, making him one of the wealthiest individuals in the American colonies at the age of 27. Hancock used his wealth to kickstart a political career being elected to the colonial legislature. One of Hancock's methods for making money was to creatively import merchandise into the colonies. You know, smuggling. This placed him in clear opposition to the Townsend Acts, and he wasn't alone. Over the autumn of 1767, an economic panic spread around New England, which the Patriots blamed the Townsend duties for. There was a shortage of capital and an abundance of bankruptcies, which led to something known as the non-consumption movement. Essentially, people were encouraged to save money and not spend it on imported British goods, which should be boycotted instead. This proposal was backed on October 28th in a Boston town meeting, and soon spread around the colonies. John Dickinson's Letters from a Farmer in Pennsylvania were published in the Pennsylvania Gazette over the winter, which recognised that Parliament and the Crown 
had a right to regulate the trade and industry of the empire, but opposed everything else in the Townsend Acts. Dickinson, who in addition to being a farmer, was also a wealthy lawyer, and he argued that the levy in the 1733 Molasses Act was constitutional because it was done for mercantilistic reasons, while the Townsend Acts were unconstitutional because they were done to raise revenue. The logic may have been dubious, but it certainly provoked the desired response among his fellow Americans. In particular, it emboldened James Otis and Sam Adams. On January 20th, 1768, the Massachusetts House of Representatives petitioned Parliament to repeal the Townsend Acts, and several weeks later sent a letter to the other colonial legislatures, calling upon them to take action. Virginia followed suit and sent a petition on April 16th, leading the governor to prorogue the assembly in response. The scene repeated itself across the colonies, with New York to be the last to act, in January 1769. Committees were established in every colony, from the main district of Massachusetts in the north to Georgia in the south, to enforce the non-importation agreements. There was, of course, opposition to this among some of the merchants, but, threatened with violence, they gave in to the general will. Tea was not included in the boycott, but this had more to do with the fact that most tea was smuggled in illegally from the Dutch. The non-importation agreements had several interesting effects. Obviously, it was highly effective economic warfare, which harmed British exports, while the Townsend Acts failed to produce revenue. Secondly, this moment marks a break in intellectual framing of events. Men such as John Dickinson, when making their arguments, started to turn away from their rights as Englishmen and towards universal rights of mankind, which, it goes without saying, meant the universal rights of white men. This alienation was felt throughout the colonies at all levels of society. Anti-British sentiments started to spread, and imperial agents were increasingly viewed as enemies and others. The British government was not impressed by these developments. A new position in the cabinet had been created, the American secretary, and its first occupant was Wills Hill, the Earl of Hillsborough. And Hillsborough furiously read aloud the colonial petitions in Parliament. On June 8th, 1768, Hillsborough wrote a secret letter to Major General Gage, instructing him to use the army to protect the customs commissioners. But this would not reach Gage until August, and events were already racing ahead. Boston was the epicentre of the crisis and tensions had been simmering, but largely kept under control. Until June 10th. On June 10th, the Liberty, a sloop owned by John Hancock, was seized on the ground that it was smuggling Madeira. It's worth mentioning that there is debate on whether the Liberty was genuinely smuggling or if it was a frame-up, but personally I would not find it out of Hancock's character. What is clear is that the commissioners wanted to make an example out of Hancock, and the Bostonians were not going to let them. There was an uproar, 
and on June 13th, four of the commissioners fled the city. They sent a request for assistance to Governor Bernard, who refused to act because he didn't want to be blamed for using force, hoping that particular order would come from Parliament. By June 15th, the commissioners, now trapped in Castle William, appealed directly to Gage. But he wouldn't act because Boston was not in rebellion, and like Bernard, he didn't want to be responsible for escalation. The commissioners would need to appeal directly to the British cabinet. Meanwhile, in Boston, they debated what to do if the British did use force. Sam Adams did not want to submit meekly, but Otis, then at his most influential, argued caution. If they fought, they would fight alone. This was proven when a committee of convention composed of delegates from the Massachusetts towns was held, and the other townships would not support Boston, never mind the other colonies. It's worth remembering throughout all of this just how radical Boston was. Boston, in particular the politically active merchant class, dominated the politics of Massachusetts, despite being a minority of the citizenry. With orders to act from Hillsborough, Gage brought in two regiments from Halifax, later joined by two more from Ireland. The commissioners and Governor Bernard were very happy, but the Bostonians were not. They didn't resist with force, but they did refuse to supply them. Troops were forced to camp in Boston Common until Gage arrived from New York and paid to quarter them. The situation calmed. The British were able to collect their taxes. It would ultimately prove a Pyrrhic victory. While it was clear that the Americans were not ready to go along with Boston's radicalism, it severely damaged Britain's already stained reputation among the Americans. They had promised that the Standing Army, a concept that terrified English gentlemen as a sign of tyranny, would only be used for border defence. Yet here it was, being used to control citizens. Over the winter of 1768-1769, Hillsborough sought out ways to punish Massachusetts for all the trouble it was causing. A series of eight resolutions was issued, which were all bark and no bite, but succeeded in further angering Americans. In August 1768, New York joined the non-importation movement, as would Pennsylvania in March 1769. Virginia was incensed, and one of the leading voices against the British was our old friend, who is going to start coming back more prominently into the narrative, George Washington. Washington argued that after the Hillsborough resolutions, quote, our lordly masters in Great Britain will be content with nothing less than the deprecation of American freedom, end quote. Virginia joined the non-importation movement, as did the rest of the South by the end of 1769, although it's worth noting that its observation was at best only partial in Georgia. As we're now ready to move into 1770, believe me, I'm as shocked as you are that we've covered over two years in one episode, I want to close this week by catching us up on events in London. The first thing we need to do is finally say goodbye to Chatham. Pitt the Elder. 
Pitt has probably had the greatest role in our narrative so far since I introduced him 32 episodes ago. His vision did much to set the stage for the British Empire. He realised that in order for Britain to truly be a global power, it needed to treat its colonies as equals rather than as subjects. He led Britain to victory in the Seven Years' War, but he was unable to convince the rest of Westminster and Whitehall that unless they viewed Americans as partners, they would be guaranteeing eventual separation. He was by now a shadow of his former self. His ideas were increasingly impractical, and he became a token figurehead for his ministry. Finally, in October 1768, he resigned, and his place was taken by his first Lord of the Treasury, Grafton. Augustus Fitzroy, the Duke of Grafton, was born in 1735, making him 33 at the time he became Prime Minister, then the youngest person to hold the position, although this record would be broken by Pitt the Younger. He had been aligned with Newcastle as he made his way into politics, served as Northern Secretary during the Rockingham Ministry, and became First Lord of the Treasury in Chatham's Ministry, and now Prime Minister. Grafton took a conciliatory position with the colonists, and in mid-1769 decided that he would repeal the Townshend Acts, with the exception of the duty on tea. As the Declaratory Act had gone with the repeal of the Stamp Act, so the tea duty would remain to both assert Parliament's fundamental right to tax the colonists, and make it an easier pill for Parliament to swallow. It takes time to make such reversals in policy, and the Townsend Crisis in the Americas was soon overshadowed by the Corsican Crisis. Long story short, Corsica declared independence from Genoa in the 1750s. The Corsican Republic, led by Pasquale Paoli, was one of the most radically liberal in the world, and Genoa was unable to reclaim control, so they secretly sold the island to France in 1764. Paoli, in response, began setting up a close friendship with the British. When the French invaded and took control of the island, Grafton did little. Grafton was attacked and fell from power during the winter, while Britain's lack of commitment to an ally further cemented British diplomatic isolation after the Seven Years' War. Grafton's replacement was Frederick North, the second Earl of Guildford, known to us as Lord North. During the 1760s, as Prime Minister, we've had Newcastle, Bute, Grenville, Rockingham, Chaffin, and Grafton. But North is going to stay as Prime Minister until 1782. This makes him the last Prime Minister who ruled the United States. Indeed, during the North Ministry, our narrative is really going to break as London becomes the other and our new centre of gravity becomes Philadelphia and New York, then, ultimately, Washington. Born in 1732, North was 37 when he became Prime Minister in January 1770. He had a complicated legacy, 
and reputation that has changed with the times. He's been criticised as a failure of British imperialism, the man who lost the 13 colonies, and also praised as an able administrator. I think Hugh Brogan sums it up nicely in his Penguin History of the United States, so I'm just going to quote him. Quote, North was the sort of chief minister that George III had been looking for since the beginning of his reign. Not for North the abrasive policies for Grenville, the abrasive personality for Pitt, the weakness of a Butte, the facetiousness of a Rockingham. Like his king, whom he resembled, physically, so closely that the story got around they had the same father. They both looked like bullfrogs. Only in North, the frog was more apparent than the bull. His strengths and weaknesses were those of the old order at its best. Hence his failure, for except in matters of public finance, he was incapable of creative innovation, however necessary. He fumbled from expedient to expedient, which has its points in quiet times, but is a quite inadequate response to great emergencies. Yet, if the old order could have responded to the challenge, North might well have been the instrument. For one thing, he was utterly devoted to it, especially to the rights, powers and prestige of the old, unreformed parliament, in which he would never find any flaw. He was the complete House of Commons man, bland, humorous, and occasionally eloquent in debate, a masterly political tactician, a competent administrator, and personally more acceptable to George III, whom he served loyally. He was steadfast in emergency, and if he was irresolute when great decisions were to be made, the king was always there to stiffen his nerve. He put together a stable ministry and a permanent parliamentary majority, and was successful for years. Only gradually did his weaknesses cripple him. To begin with, all went well. On the 5th of March, 1770, in the first great measure of his administration, he moved the repeal of the Townsend duties, arguing that they were commercially nonsensical. He said nothing about the crucial fact that they had stirred up more trouble than they were worth. They were still doing so. Across the Atlantic, on the very day of North's speech, Boston erupted again. End quote. That is where we're going to leave things for this week. Next time out, we'll plunge into the 1770s as the revolution inches ever closer. Thanks for listening. I'll see you then.